I realized this afternoon why this is so challenging for me. Because I am a global thinker. I'm not a linear thinker. I don't build step by step by step. That's not the way my mind works. Where you get this done and you move to this, move to this, move to this. You've got to see the whole thing. When I was building houses, I would have to build that house in my head, the complete house, every step, before I could ever start, because I had to have the full picture. It wasn't just, okay, let's do this, and do this, and do this. I had to get it all the way to a finished house before I could ever start. That's the way my mind works. So getting my mind around the fullness of revelation has been tricky, because I will think I've got everything kind of, it's making sense. And the Lord will bring something else, and it's like, oh, I've got to try to find a place for that. This has exploded in my head. That's a dangerous place for an explosion, because you all have to contend with it when it starts trying to come out. We looked at Revelation 4, and when John immediately was in the Spirit, looked into the throne room, described what he saw, and again, I'm, I'm more convinced all the time that he's not describing a future throne room, He's describing a throne room as it is and as it was. And I think from looking at chapter 5, I'm even more convinced that that's what John saw. And what we need to understand is our connection to that throne room. It is the place of such substance to us because it should be more real. It should be more connected to us than many of the places that we're very familiar with here. We just never have been taught much about it, don't know much about what John actually saw. But I'm not going to step back through all that. I can just reteach all that and teach it and teach it and teach it. But he, he was like standing here describing the people and describing this room. But in Revelation 5, he starts describing a particular event that's going on in that throne room. As I have shared several times, I have just never seen revelations like this. I have always done what everybody seemed to teach in the way they, they were to teach through this is to recognize that it's a prophetic vision of something yet to come, so you have to get the symbolism right for it to make sense. Well, investigating it differently, the symbolism is still important. I can't negate that. But I have found some things here that have just become so clear to me and some that have not become so clear to me. Well, I want to talk about one tonight that has not become real clear to me, but fascinates me. And before I kind of even get into the balance of of Revelation 5, I need to take this topic on for just a minute, because to me it answers some of the scripture that we've read and heard falls into place. Our typical concept of the separation that happened, that's the universe in a box. And at one time, all things in heaven and all things of earth were together. Again, I believe when God was walking with man in the garden, it's because the the presence of God and the walking of man was in the same place. So I, I can see that as being possible. But when there was sin, our typical picture says, okay, that which is heaven and that which is earth now has a space between them. That's why I've always seen this separation. And that, yes, the Holy Spirit is the connection now between heaven and earth, but described in our minds as two separate geographical areas. Again, what in the world difference does it make? The Lord began to show me was that this separation is not the separation as he sees it, or that actually occurred in Genesis. How many of you knew why he wouldn't let them back in? That the reason he couldn't let them in to eat from the tree of life, according to 
Genesis 3, 23, and 24, was it because now they knew the difference between good and evil. Basically what he's saying is they've taken this step and now they're sinners. They've taken this step and now they are in a sinful condition. If I let them eat from the tree of life, then that means they will be in that sinful condition for an eternal life. So he couldn't let them back in so that they couldn't eat and stay in that eternally. And it makes sense to us because we know when we are saved and our sin is dealt with by God, by the blood of Jesus, when our sin is dealt with, he then can give us eternal life. He couldn't give it to us prior to that because that would have meant I would have been in an eternal state in a sinless state. So when our sin was dealt with, then he can give us the gift of eternal life. For God so loved the world. What did he do? He gave everlasting life. These things begin to connect. We begin to recognize this is why God couldn't let them stay in the garden because they would have eaten from the tree of life and been in that awful sinful state for eternity. It was an act of love. It was an act of kindness for him not to let them back in. I just saw it as punishment. When we back away from these things and we look at this and recognize that makes much more sense than the fact that he was just upset with two kids that did something wrong and punished them by kicking them out of the garden. Said you can't play here anymore. It's necessary to create that kind of a scenario where it wasn't God. So separate it from, from wrath. But when it is an act of love and kindness, I want it to be God's decision. When I read the scripture, it says that's, that's what he did. It was his choice because he said we can't let them back in there. In verse 22, he says we can't do this. I don't want them to live eternally because you know, the, in the description that I read, it said it was like being in a swamp, as nasty as it could possibly be filled with snakes and alligators for eternity. That would have been the state that he left them in. We read scriptures like in Ephesians that says that we have been seated in heavenly places. That's done, that's said as a statement in the past. Past tense, already done. It's very difficult for this to make sense to me. So what I realized was that on the earth there was a place called Eden. And even though that it was sealed, it was still was surrounded by the earth. That was the beginning of a picture. What if the separation that God created between heaven and earth, and this separation that was created by sin, what if it was this place still held within the content of everything else? And what if this was a spiritual separation? Because what did Adam lose? He lost that spiritual relationship with God where he could walk with God. So the separation was to, with what was lost was what it would take for man to walk with God again. What difference does it make? Well, if, if I took somebody who was on the earth and heaven is completely separated and they could walk from corner to corner and back and forth and back and forth, they would never cross through heaven. But if this was a spiritual place where this was actually pulled out only spiritually, because that's what it would take for man to walk with God, anybody passing through here would be, could pass at any time through those things of heaven. Those things spiritually pulled out. And what if, when we're saved, we actually get to reside in there again? Because these 24 elders, as we've talked about, represent the saints currently. That won't work in this scenario. It will in this one, because we've read several times already, where is this throne? It's in us. So some of these things can begin to make sense if we create this kind of separation, 
pulling this out from everything in, in the universe, which is, makes actually to me makes much more sense that God would lift that hold away from us, that which would allow us to walk with God. We know Adam and Eve still had physical bodies. They still had a soul. It was the spirit that was affected that day. It was the spirit that was dead. So, you know, what it would take for us to have a walk with God would be the restoration of those things spiritual. And that's what happened. Jesus coming to cleanse us by his blood, which we're fixing to read, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, which we're fixing to read. They would allow man to walk with God again. But this would allow us to be in that throne room right now. So conceptually, this is stirring around in my head thinking, have I lost my mind or is this supposed to make sense? I still don't know the answer to that part. But I do know that when I saw that it was this kind of separation, instead of what I'd always seen, two different geographical areas, heaven and earth, but what if earth was held still within the bounds of heaven? And when we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that by Jesus' desire would it be that all things of heaven and all things of earth would be together again, then that's made possible by his death, made possible by the giving of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what Revelation 5 tells us. I think Revelation 4, John saw the throne room and was promised that he would see things yet to come. But I believe the majority of what happens in 4 and in 5 that we're going to read more about right now, he's describing what allowed us to have this relationship with God that would bring the 24 elders back into the throne room where we could actually have that experience with God. Remember, they're seated. They're not standing That's still telling us something right now about us, that it will never be by work, never be by our effort that we will please God. We abide with God. My mind is pulling these things from every direction that are making sense in this understanding. When you all sit there with these furrowed brows, it's like, I know I'm losing you, or you're just overwhelmed. I'm not sure what I'm seeing. And so that's why I said it's dangerous for my mind to explode like that. Okay, back to five. I want to read just a little bit more of this because I don't, I don't think there's a chance in the world for me to get through all of chapter five again. Revelation five, I'm going to begin with verse five. We really got through four with John saying in, in verse four that he wept much because no man had been found in heaven and earth that could actually open this scroll. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth unto all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. But notice, as we begin this, John is seeing Jesus at a point where certain things had already been done. He's seeing Jesus as if he had been slain. So he's looking at that as a situation in history. So we know when he's looking at the throne room, 
He's not looking at a future throne room. He's seeing Jesus in this moment when he sees it as Jesus who has already been slain. Jesus who has already done this because this is what qualifies him to be able to touch this scroll and to open it. So the beauty of the story began to unfold when I recognized that there was a part back here that that John was describing in the past, and then he breaks forth into the things that will happen in the future, and this will bring the full plan of redemption, the full story. Because it will take for us to enter in, and, and this I was confused about this last week, full redemption is the new heaven and the new earth. That is God's full plan, where there is no sin to contend with. There is no Satan to contend with. And the full redemption of us, the carrying us to the full distance, is the new heaven and the new earth. Satan completely dealt with, thrown into the lake of fire, all that dealt with now. At the end of the, of, of the millennial reign, a new heaven and a new earth brings full redemption. It's interesting to me, and, and we, we kind of got into this little conversation after last Wednesday night, that everything that, that it took, to bring us to the place where we are right now, is held in Leviticus, I believe it's 22, in the seven feasts. Those seven feasts will bring us up to the millennial reign. Four of those feasts we look back as history. The Passover was the first of them. The killing of the lamb. First fruits, each one of those. The fourth one being representing Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. There's three that we still look at as prophecy. Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. We know that's next. The blowing of the trumpet will be the point of rapture. Right after that, the Day of Atonement, when Israel will be restored as the chosen as it really was. And then Tabernacles, when God will be with His people. Those are the seven feasts. That brings us up to the rapture. This scroll that we're reading about now, tells us of all the events that have to happen from there across here to bring us into this full redemption. I've never seen that before. So what John is seeing is this stuff, and then he breaks free in chapter 6 to begin to tell us about this stuff. Because what he's describing, what qualified Jesus to, to open the scroll, which will be here, what qualified him was all this stuff back here. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit. All of those things that that we read that qualified him to be the one who could take the scroll and open it and begin to tell us. And then, as he was told when he would go into the throne room, I'll show you those things yet to come. This is where he begins to do it. But so far, we're reading about the qualifications of the one who was able to do it. So we're going to, for the next few minutes, we're going to break this down and go slow enough and actually understand this in a little bit more detail. So verse 5, it was at this point that he heard a voice behind him. John did. It says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping, stop crying. Behold, the lamb that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. I want to tell you, again, I speculated on Sunday morning. I could never say that this was true. But it is interesting to me that what happened here, who is guarding this place? Who was it that God set there to make sure there was no one who, in a lost condition who could actually get to that tree of life? It was the cherubim. 
The word cherubim says one who, who attends at the throne of God. So by that word, it's like, okay, that makes sense that somebody in the presence of the throne room of God would be the one who would make this cry because it was the cherubim who were placed at the ends of this to keep people out. Well, again, when did that change? When could we be allowed to enter that again? Remember the condition. Sin was keeping us out. So what happened when Jesus came and our sin was dealt with and we received the Holy Spirit? What could we suddenly do? We could access Eden again, the place where we could walk with God. That's not a future sometime. That's We have that privilege right now. And this is blowing my mind. Man, it's getting more clear all the time. I say it and it comes out of my mouth. It's like, whoa, did y'all just hear what God said? Surprising me. That's the moment. And that's why it's okay to say that 24 elders were already there. Because the sin that was keeping us from walking with God that had created this separation that had been sealed off, there was one who was saying, who can do it? And they said, I know who it is. It's the guy that did away with sin. It's the person who did away with the consequence of death. So that we could say, we get to live forever. To me, what a strange and remarkable truth. There is one who is worthy. There is one who has overcome. The word overcome is translated from Greek to conquer or to gain victory. The lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome death. So who is he? Why this description? When Jacob blessed his sons in Genesis 49.9, he comes to Judah. Think of these words. You know, he is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Judah's not the country. Judah is the person, the son of Jacob, whose name is Judah. And he stops in front of Judah and he calls him the lion's whelp. The word whelp means cub. He is the lion's cub. And then Genesis 49.10, he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. The word shallow, we typically cause it in a standard understanding, means tranquility or peace, a place of rest. When you read and look up shallow in Hebrew, there's a colon that says tranquility. Before that, it says one who has the right to. So here's the promise being made through Judah that someone will come through you that has the right to do something. And we get to know what the right to do something is. So he's told him, from you, from Judah, will come this one who is called Shiloh, and he is the only one who will have the right to open this book. Only Shiloh has the right to rule. So what does it mean when it says the root of David? The line of the tribe of Judah has roots in David. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13, it says, God said to David that he would have a descendant whose kingdom would be established forever. That is, David would be a root, and out of his flesh and blood would come one who would rule forever. So when we begin to understand this phrase, that it is the lion from the tribe of Judah, we understand the history behind where those phrases are coming from. So when we get to Matthew chapter 1 in the begat section that we kind of skip, we recognize very quickly that Jesus is a direct descendant of David. So out of him would come someone. Out of Judah would come someone, the David, that would bring the someone who would be shallow, who was Jesus. We read this because we understand this is the stuff 
that is being described here that qualifies Jesus to be the one who could open the scroll. These are not just things that we learn. They're fascinating to me. But they are the things that give us understanding. Again, why did Jesus have to be born alive? This is one of those that we can dismiss and say that is a, that's an interesting fact. But what difference does it make? Well, the fact that he was born alive, that he didn't have an earthly father. Death is passed to us by our fathers, not our mothers. That curse of death comes through fathers. So that in the fact that Jesus was born of a woman, was God connecting himself to humanity. Again, why? What difference does it make? Because for this to be an act of justice, there had to be free will attached to it. It had to be Jesus' choice to give himself on the cross. His life couldn't be taken. It had to be his choice. We get this from the Old Testament picture when Abraham took Isaac up on Mount Moriah because he had heard from God that what he was supposed to do, to take him up there and that they would prepare a sacrifice. Now we get this picture that Isaac is this little boy following along trailing behind his father. We understand by the terms used that's not the case. He was probably almost 30 years old. So his father wasn't tricking him into laying down saying, you know, look, I've got something for you. Just lay down here and I'll give it to you. I mean, his father wasn't tricking him. Isaac was a full participant in this. When we begin to understand that Old Testament picture that this was a man fully capable of understanding when he was laid out on that table for sacrifice and, and his father standing there with his knife, he submitted himself in that moment until God provided a ram to be sacrificed. Jesus was a full participant. There was no tricking him into giving up his life. He was a full participant because free will had to be established. So the simple part of the criteria was that he had to be born alive because how do you pay for death if you don't pay it with life? You couldn't offer anybody else. You couldn't offer one of us because that would have been paying death for death. You won't get anywhere. If true payment was going to be made, it had to be life for death. He had to be someone who was sinless. If the way to sin, if for somebody to become sin, he couldn't have been sin already. Again, couldn't have been us. For Jesus, and this is even hard to comprehend, what it meant on the cross when Jesus became sin for us. That's not a phrase we should toss around easily. He became sin. Why? So that when he died, what died? Sin. If he had not been sinless, he could not have taken it on. It took someone who was sinless to take on that our sin that we couldn't pay for. He took our sin on, that which had been committed in the Old Testament, that which was being committed at the time, and that which would ever be committed, he took all of it on himself so that the weight of sin, the consequence of sin, the death that was the wage of sin, would be paid for. He couldn't have done that had he not been sinless. He had to be alive, and he had to be sinless, and he had to be connected to humanity for free will, for justice to be established. All of those things had to be in play when it's recognized here is someone, here is a man who was of heaven, a man from heaven, but still joined to humanity, all the things that we've described, and I don't know how, as Christians, we're not overwhelmed by these thoughts. Verse 6, and he said, And I saw between the phrases, actually, I saw in the midst of the throne, with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. So we went from the line of, of the tribe of Judah, now to the, this, the same picture of the same person, now described as a lamb, standing as if slain. So what would this look like? If we went back into the Old Testament and realized what actually happened here, they would take a lamb 
as, as innocent as it could possibly be, as weak as it could possibly be, as white, because it had to be the perfect one. It couldn't be the, the run. It had to be the best they had. And they would kill it by slicing his throat. So what would happen if that lamb was showing all the signs of being executed still alive, still standing? That's what he was seeing. Someone who had already gone through everything required and alive now. That's what he was seeing in Jesus. Price paid, execution occurred alive. The lion and now the lamb, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. When did that occur? When did the Spirit of God get sent out into all the earth? Make it obvious. Yeah, Pentecost. We're still reading about a historic event, something that has already occurred. At that point, with that crucifixion, now came the cleaning of the cup, now comes the filling of the cup. The Holy Spirit sent into all the world, given as a gift to the entire world. You know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, a universal gift. But in John chapter 1, it says, but to those who would receive, what still had to be done with the universal gift. One by one, we still have to receive it. The Holy Spirit was given as a gift to anyone. What still had to be done still had to be received. He didn't just drop it on them. It still had to be received. It should not at all be surprised that the Holy Spirit was sent out into all the world. In the midst of the throne with the four living creatures... And the elders was the Lamb. What an amazing, glorious unity if we would just see it. What glorious oneness with the one who sits on the throne. Think of who's there. Think of these beasts that are picturing the priestly relationship. Think of, of these 24 elders that picture us, this current priesthood, who are allowed, not just in the future, but right now, to be in the presence of God. We teach our children that. We teach our children, give them the examples of running down the hall and running into the throne room of God, having access to the throne room of God. It's in the scripture. Why should this stun us? As a matter of fact, it ought to be clarifying all those scriptures that talk right now about us having access, going in boldly into the throne room of God. They're all there. And it shouldn't surprise us that that, that he's talking about a situation that is current. On the throne, the perfect expression of life. The lamb or the elders, the royal priesthood. And again, it says a lamb that was slain. He showed the evidence of being killed. Here's the one, Jesus, who was spoken of in prophecy. He is a man yet sinless, crucified but resurrected. Death couldn't hold him. He's worthy to break the shields and shower blessings upon the human race by bringing to it full redemption. Again, I stand consistently blown away. The lamb has seven horns. In the scripture, the horns speak of power. What does it mean if there were seven of them? Seven is, is the number for what? Perfection. So what kind of power did he have? Perfect power. Seven spirits. Perfect spiritual authority. The lamb is the epitome of weakness. The lion is the epitome of strength. As the lamb of God, Jesus portrayed that perfect weakness that he didn't do anything of himself even to the point of staying on the cross. But the lion overcame every temptation. The warrior became victorious even over death. Seven eyes, again it says with the seven spirits, it was sent into all the earth. And again, I believe with certainty that it speaks of Pentecost. I don't know of another time in the scripture where the Spirit of God was released at one time except Pentecost. shouldn't surprise us that John is seeing for him... 
what would be a future event. What for him was a historic event. He's writing this in about 95, I think, about 95 AD. So he's looking back. He's already realized what Jesus has done. He's lived through the giving of the Holy Spirit. He's looking at situations that are very familiar to him. And remember, he's giving this to a group of people who would understand it. This revelation was never designed to be confusing. He was giving it to to very simple people in terms that they would understand quite readily, not to bring confusion, but to bring them hope because they, they were kind of believing that maybe Jesus had already come back and they missed it. And he's giving them this assurance that, no, that these things are the things that have to occur. So he's still giving them things in 95 AD that they could say, yeah, this was this. We lived through this. Our parents lived through this. So this is very common, very very current as John writes it. Verse 7, and he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Jesus took the book containing all the instructions for the complete redemption of all humanity. Again, make notes if you haven't already. This is Jeremiah 32. I've never seen a better picture of what was on those scrolls than what we read about in Jeremiah 32. And him taking that, him buying that land from a relative, that the terms of this would be written down on two scrolls. I get to thinking about what was written on those scrolls. One was talking about how the payment was made. The other one was how redemption would come. Because they were in exile. He was buying a piece of property somewhere else. Someday he would have to take back that he couldn't take possession of immediately. So the second one was designed so that when they got back there, they could unseal this thing and it would describe how he would take possession of the land. He would redeem what was his. He had paid for it, but he couldn't take possession of it yet. So when we realize that's what was written on those scrolls, that's one of the more clarifying things about Revelation, about what's on these scrolls. On this one, it's describing everything now that's got to occur from the rapture, things that we know about from the seven feasts, takes us from there to all that will have to unfold in the tribulation period and all those, that stuff so that we can actually see what it's going to take to get us to the new heaven and the new earth. You won't read this in a commentary. I didn't get this by reading. I just, it, this has been the strangest stuff that God's ever put together. I'm not saying I didn't read. Please don't misunderstand that. I didn't just sit and ponder. But as I would read, the Holy Spirit would bring truth. It would just kind of explode at the time. Verse 8. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, even one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The scene is the victory celebration. The Lamb's accomplishment is so great that it immediately induces worship. Again, think about this. Where is that supposed to be occurring? I don't say this to create concern, but there ought to be a reality to something that for those of us sitting in the room, And, you know, I know that the music Sunday morning was coming from CDs and things that David and I put together. But, man, those songs were about to lift me out of here because I was so reminded in them of who he is. I mean, talking about the voices, what a moment. And, again, to think that we're in it, not a future moment, but a moment that we're currently in, that when we think about what Jesus did, When we get a glimpse of this lamb that was slain, still carrying the appearance of what was done, standing there and and realizing that this was for me. This is what changed my life. This is what brought me salvation from lost to saved, from sinner to saint. This is what gives me hope for eternity. I don't have to die. Yeah, my body's going to die, but I'll live forever. 
I don't know anything that, that would give me greater hope and that, that upon this discovery would cause me to explode in praise. And we're so casual about it. Could make us wonder, do we even really realize what happened? Do we get it? Or have we made this so shallow in our teaching that you just say this prayer and you get to be saved and go to heaven someday, and we miss the richness of it? We miss the fact that it was our sin dealt with that allowed him to give us eternal life and that the price that he had to pay, where he's standing in the throne room of God, standing in our presence in the midst of us as represented by the 24 elders, and we're sitting there not on the edge of our seat as we're seated around him in this throne room. We're laid back with our hands across our chest saying, Would this, I wish this could hurry up and be over. Like, no, who are saved? Where is this life that that goes along with what Jesus did for us? You look at those 12 disciples. You look at their lives and the price they paid to follow. We look at what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts when they came in claiming that they had sold all this land and here was all the money. And Peter says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? And they fall over dead and they're carried out and buried. And it said no man dared join himself to them. Why? Because it was expected to be a life that would match the commitment, a life that would match what Jesus had done. That was normal. They wouldn't do it. Because they knew that the life that was supposed to come after was supposed to match what Jesus had done in the giving of the Holy Spirit. As I mentioned Sunday, the church has lost its way and we desperately need to find it again. We desperately need to fall in love with God again and understand exactly what happened. Lord, we thank you again for such a picture where the saints of all times are in that throne room singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Let us pray, Lord, that you would find us faithful in that song, that we sing a new song, not, not one that we're waiting on, but one that we have already been given. Thank you, Lord, for this truth that we can experience right now because of what you have done in the death of Christ the burial, the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit, that which you have already restored in this redemptive plan to give us the assurance that what you have said is yet to come is as certain as that which we've already experienced. Thank you, Lord, for this powerful picture, the truth of this revelation that affects our lives right now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.